0: Saturday. It's March 18th, 2023. And you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London.
1: And I'm Michael Haney in New York City.
0: And Michael, for the first day in two weeks, we have a little bit of sunlight here and there is reason to live again.
1: Same here. Sort of survived some version of a nor'easter. But you know what? I see the crocuses and the daffodils are already pushing through. So spring is slowly coming our way.
0: It had better. Otherwise, I'm going to end up in a sanatorium (laughs) somewhere. This is a cry for help. (laughs) At least we have lots of cheery topics this week to talk about in morning meeting.
1: We've got a great show. Stuart Heritage joins us from the UK to chat about the scandal that has embroiled two of the country's institutions, the BBC and... Premier League Soccer. And while we're in the UK, we will also speak with Daisy Dawney, who takes us inside a centuries-old library that is the hotspot for a new generation of writers and writer hookups. And finally, Antonia Voloshan will take us inside her shocking report on how neo-Nazi elements have infiltrated German law enforcement. So it's a fascinating show and a great issue of airmail this week, which runs the gamut as always.
0: We've even got a great little story about Paul Malay, the Upper East Side Barbershop where everybody from JFK Jr. to Donald Trump used to go.
1: Yeah, I've never been there, but it's one of those places I wanted to go to years ago and I asked a friend. It's like joining a social club in New York City. He's like, yeah, and I'm like, can't you give me a recommendation? Like, "Mm, no, I think he was basically concerned that I might steal his chair or something. So I never got in. Can you tell us about Paul Molay?
0: It's like the Rayos of barber shops, <laughs> Michael. <Mike. Paul. laughs> I mean, there's a lot of drama surrounding it. Paul Molay, who founded the barbershop back in 1913, died in 1971. And a lot has happened since then. His son took it over. And then there were some business developments that resulted in someone else taking control of the company. We've got all the drama there. But it's in short, Michael, you're off the hook because it's temporarily shuttered. But it's a fascinating one. It's one of those only in New York stories that's an awful lot of fun to read and delve into. So we are not going to have the writer Andrew Zucker here on the show with us today, but we encourage you to read that story because it is delicious. Where do you get your haircut now? I'm kind of curious. You have a signature haircut. Who does it for you?
1: I go to Gino's Barberia on Greenwich Avenue, which also cuts a few other airmail staffers, including Nathan King and a few others who I've sent there. So it's very, got a very loyal clientele.
0: You and Nathan look fantastic. Well done, gentlemen.
1: Well, the Paul Molay story reminds me of one we've also got by Elena Claverino this week about, you've all heard about the VIPs, which is what Paul Molay seems to be built on. But then there's the fashion world, which you know very well, actually has VICs. And we get a good story on that this week, which are the very important clients, right?
0: It's so funny. I have experience with this. Like I was in Paris for fashion week years and years ago. And one of my friends was there at the same time. And she was a publicist for a fashion house. And she went into the Elias store and because she's so beautiful and fabulous and incredible looking and cool and whatever, they thought she was like a very important client. And Michael, I kid you not, Within five seconds, she was plied with champagne. She bought like 20 dresses and she ended up brilliantly getting like driven back to the hotel, which we were sharing a room somewhere on the left bank for $99 a night in like a chauffeured Mercedes Benz. And she woke up the next morning and said, oh my God, what have I done? How much did I spend? And the fashion houses have only gotten savvier in the intervening years and they now have all sorts of inventive ways for clients to feel special and therefore to spend money. It's sales and marketing people.
1: Yeah, during the shows which have just ended. If you spend six figures at one of these houses, they'll fly you in for the shows. They'll take you to Palazzo's, private dinners. I always equate it to it's the fashion world equivalent of what happens in Vegas, which was known as the whales. If you're a big, a high stakes gambler, you get the sweets, you get flown in on the private jet, eat for free, but because they know you're going to lay down and leave a lot of money. So look at the fashion world equivalent of that.
0: Michael, if you dazzle them, they will come.
1: (laughs) I think that should be your next t-shirt.
0: That's the name of our next podcast. If you dazzle them, they will come. Now, it's funny. It's like they say it's better than a travel agent. It's also cheaper than a travel agent, although not if you consider the hundreds of thousands of dollars of accessories you leave with.
1: Well, we're cheaper than a travel agent. We're going to take you around the world a little bit.
0: You and I, my friend, we will never be there, but it's fun to read about this stuff from exactly.
1: So where would you like to begin this week?
0: Oh, darling. How did one of the most beloved and respected journalists in the United Kingdom get quasi-cancelled for a single tweet? Stu Heritage, a writer-at-large for Airmail and a frequent contributor to this podcast, is here to tell us all about it. Welcome, Stu. Stu, Gary Lineker, is this the most very English scandal of all time or (laughs) what?
2: It's quite English. It's about the national hero who's almost single-handedly taken down the national broadcaster. That's kind of British. With a tweet as well, with a quite a polite tweet.
0: Well, this is the weirdest thing. I mean, isn't he sort of like the Terry Gross of the UK?
2: I guess. If Terry Gross had been the second highest goal scorer in American soccer history, then he'd be like the Terry Gross.
0: OK, take us back. Who is Gary Lineker and how did he end up on the BBC in the first place? OK,
2: Gary Lineker is a former soccer player. Let's call him a soccer player who rose through the ranks of the football leagues, becoming the highest goal scorer in sort of the second division and then first division. He was the leading goal scorer at the 1986 World Cup. Just a national hero. And as well, he was never formally disciplined by a referee in 16 years of matches. He's this untouchable sort of sporting hero who subsequently went on to become a broadcaster, a football sporting television broadcaster who works for the BBC and is the highest-paid presenter in all of the BBC. Anything he puts his hands to, he's massively successful. He started endorsing potato chips a few years ago, and sales went through the roof. And for a professional athlete to sell snack food is ethically a bit weird, but he made it work. That's the history of Gary Lineker.
0: Tell us about the tweet that's now been heard around the world.
2: (laughs) The British government have just announced a policy which is kind of, it's got this very Trumpy name, Stop the Boats, which is a system by which they want to sort of intercept small boats full of asylum seekers, refugees coming across from France, and send them to Rwanda, which is a quite a hardcore thing to do. Gary Lineker wrote a tweet saying that the Home Secretary's announcement of it contained language that was reminiscent of 1930s Germany. So it's basic comparing them to Nazis. And that kicked off a firestorm <laughs> that honestly almost took down the BBC as we know it. A lot of conservative MPs complained about the wording of the speech. The BBC formally reprimanded Lineker, who he presents a weekly football show on Saturday nights called Match of the Day. So he was taken off air and pretty much everyone else who works for BBC Sport refused to go on air in an act of solidarity. All his pundits, fellow pundits on Match of the Day said they weren't going on TV. All of like the sister shows, Match of the Day 2 and Football Focus, they decided they weren't going to go on air. Lots of radio hosts decided they weren't going to go on air. And as a result, Match of the Day, which is normally like a long, expansive 90-minute football highlights clip show, got crushed down into this like haunted looking 20 minute compilation of football highlights without anybody speaking. No words were spoken in those 20 minutes because the BBC doesn't have rights to any other commentary. It's been very interesting to watch.
0: Now, tell us about the gentleman at the helm of the BBC and how they got there, because that also is rich territory.
2: Yeah. The chairman, Richard Sharp. One of the big things that got Gary Lineker into trouble is this sort of the issue of impartiality which the BBC always says it has, which if you work for the BBC, you're not allowed to express a political opinion one way or the other, because it kind of compromises the neutrality of the corporation. But the chairman, Richard Sharp, is the guy who helps facilitate an enormous loan to Boris Johnson. I think it was £800,000 loan from a Canadian businessman. And Richard Sharp was kind of the middleman in all of this. And it all happened weeks before Boris Johnson recommended him to be the chairman of the BBC, which it looks like it might be a sort of a severe case of compromised ethics, not particularly politically impartial.
1: Stu, is it fair to say that this is from where I sit? It seems like after, whatever, four or five years now of Britain being divided by Brexit and then Johnson and looking for a prime minister, it seems like England and Great Britain has finally found something that unites everyone? Which is...
2: Yeah, don't mess with Gary Lineker. (laughs) (laughs) He's pretty much the one guy in the whole country who you don't... If you're trying to win favour with normal people, he's the one guy you kind of don't go up against because he's literally... He's a national hero. It would be like, I'm trying to think of an American comparison and I can't think of one because I'm not very good at American sports. But imagine Wayne Brady. Is that a guy? Is he a sports person? You're asking the wrong people. Tom Brady. Tom Brady. I don't know any. Of them. I, sh- I shouldn't get into this. This
0: guy's basically like a choir boy, is what you're saying. I mean, there's frankly, there's no American equivalent to that. I'm sorry to say.
2: He is. Yeah, he's famous for never getting into trouble. Not even a yellow card, which is sort of the gentle ticking off. That you get for slightly breaking a rule during a football match. He didn't even get one of those.
0: Stu, do you guys watch Ted Lasso here in the UK?
2: Yeah, yeah. He's in Ted Lasso a lot, isn't he? Yes, of course.
0: Stu, it's a fascinating story and a very delicious scandal, and we thank you for explaining it all to us.
2: It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Have a great day. Only in Britain, Michael. Only
1: in Britain. Actually, has Charlie, he's gone over to the football side of things, hasn't he? Oh
0: my gosh. My weekends are like something that was left on the cutting room floor of Ted Lasso. It's unbelievable. Nine years in New York, I tried to get this kid playing soccer. Within two weeks of arriving in the UK, it's all that he wants to do. And it's fascinating. And my favorite part about it is the trash talking. In the States, we're encouraged to be supportive and emphasize sportsmanship. No, here it's about winning. Winning. And it is not about losing. And it is really funny to watch. I mean, it's also kind of sad, but it's also very funny to watch that play out. You have a bunch of nine-year-olds running around the field, trash-talking one another. I shouldn't laugh at that. I'm sorry. All right. Well, Michael, where can you find the most stylish and accomplished journalist in London? It turns out in St. James's Square. And we've got Daisy Donnie, one of our writers at large, to tell us all about it. Welcome, Daisy.
3: Hi, thanks for having me. So, Daisy, what is the London Library? So the London Library is kind of the oldest lending library in London. It was founded in like 1841, I think, when there weren't any state-funded libraries. And it kind of quickly became this place where writers and thinkers and all kinds of literary greats, I suppose, became members of it. And it's got this amazing history. And Now it's got this beautiful building in the sort of corner of St. James's Square where it's still a place where people kind of gather and research, read, write, think.
1: So you've got, as you note in your story this week, you've got, when you talk about famous names, it's not just books on the shelves, but Virginia Woolf, Charles Darwin, Tom Stoppard have all sort of made it their home across the centuries, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's Kind of part of the exciting appeal about going there is you kind of feel that you're going up in the footsteps of T.S. Eliot or Charles Darwin or Virginia Woolf or whoever your hero might happen to be. Chances are that they will have been there. And the list of members is just like the most amazing A to Z of literary greats.
1: Talk about that membership, because sitting here in New York City, I'm like, and all of us were looking for spaces to get out of the house, to go work and sort of find some inspiration. And you don't need any kombucha anymore We work, but you've got this library, which it's a small membership. And yet it seems to be the place where all the new generation of writers is coming to sort of work and find space. And it's all about sort of drawing that inspiration, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. I think it's got this very unique atmosphere at the library, which is kind of quiet, collective endeavour. So you kind of feel like people, like minds are whirring in there and people are getting stuff done. And it's the opposite of a kind of ping pong, have a beer, have a chat, we work type culture it's much more it's a very niche little place and it's got a very particular atmosphere which I think the members absolutely love and when I was like talking to people for the article every member I spoke to is like passionate about the library and loves being there and loves the whole experience of being a member and I think there is something very unique about it so just to kind of describe it to people who've not been there it's a very old building which you go into and you go into a lobby and you kind of leave your coat and there's a hat stand and step back in time I mean you've probably walked from Green Park Tube and you've walked past kind of hat makers and white wine merchants and it takes you sort of back in time anyway being in that part of London it's very kind of rarefied and elegant and it's wonderful and then you get in there and you leave your things in the lobby and then you go upstairs and there's a big reading room where you can kind of access any kind of periodical or newspaper or anything and sit and read in an armchair or at a desk and then there's next door there's a big writer's room which again is a lovely room to be in it's got big windows and you can sit and just sit at a desk with a lamp and just quietly get on with writing or whatever it is you're doing researching and then there's obviously the stacks which are kind of these steel grills and then there's like thousands of books and you can just kind of it's a free-for-all for you to wander you kind of there are these pull cord light switches it's all quite old fashioned so I'd say <laughs> so you then you wander down these wonderful dark stacks and you can pick whatever book takes your fancy. And I think part of the magic is that you can walk through the stacks. You don't have to kind of pre-order or do it through the librarian. So you can just wander about and see what, where it takes you.
0: Now, books, though, Daisy, are not the only alluring thing about the London Library. It turns out that the fellow library goers often find one another quite interesting. Tell us a little bit about the dating scene that's popping up around this community.
3: Yeah, I have to just say that this is not something I've experienced firsthand, but someone that I... A few of the people that I chatted to for the article said to me that, in fact, they have met people through the library and they've had phone numbers left on their desks and they've ended up going on dates. And I think it's all great. I mean, there aren't that many places nowadays that you would meet new people. And that's all a great side of it.
1: I have an important question. Like any library, when I'm there, I inevitably want to put my head down on the table and fall asleep for a few minutes. Is there a policy against napping? Is there a little place if you start snoring, you're okay? Or just asking for a friend, as we say?
3: <laughs> There's no policy against napping. And I've definitely seen people sleeping. I think a lot of people go there maybe to kill time between a lunch and a something else happening and they maybe just go up to the reader's room and get a newspaper and then definitely have a little doze.
1: Okay, so I wouldn't be out of place if I was sitting there with a newspaper over my head and making some snoring sounds.
3: Maybe the snoring. People are quite quiet, I'd say. So I don't know if the snoring would go down great, (laughs) but the sleeping would be fine.
1: Tell us also, how is Helen and Bonham Carter associated now with the library as you're reporting your story?
3: So she is now the president of the library and the library's got this history of having these kind of illustrious presidents and previously it was Sir Tim Rice and Sir Tom Stoppard so there's been a kind of theatrical bent I guess with the appointment of those figures and they kind of they're kind of ambassadors I guess for the library and I think before I wrote the story I was a bit I had a bit of trepidation about writing it because the library is such a kind of hidden gem and I think its members are quite protective of it I'd say and the people that know it and love it, as I've said, absolutely, passionately love it. And I think having Helena Bonham Carter come in, it was kind of like wanting to raise the publicity, actually, for the library and encourage this thing of new members and more of a vibrant scene. And it, it made me feel a bit better writing the piece as well, I have to say.
1: <laughs> I guess one good thing, is you note, also, like I originally, thought when I heard a membership library in London, must be very expensive, but it's only roughly $60 a month to join, which is, as you know, much cheaper than getting that hot desk at WeWork or any other place. So it's a great steal at that point.
3: Yeah, I think it is. And I think people balk a bit at the beginning thinking, oh, a library, having to pay for a library feels strange when there are sort of every borough's got a library that you can go and use. But it's such a different kind of experience, I think, to be a member of the London Library that... It feels more like having a kind of workspace that you can use, but it's also got this community attached to it. So, yeah, for me, it feels like an absolute steal. But obviously you are still paying to be a member. I think there are great incentives like the under 30s get half price membership. And then they do this wonderful program called the Emerging Writers Programme, which takes on about 40 new members just for a year. And it's for like Emerging Writers and they get a free year and they're kind of nurtured. And it's definitely a place that's kind of encouraging.
0: Well, Daisy, thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you in the stacks.
3: Okay, thank you.
0: Michael, I've got to check this out. I've just been sitting here working at home with my dog at my feet. I'm clearly missing out on life.
1: I presumed you've already been there. Like, I would be there every day now. How far is it from your home?
0: Unfortunately, it's like 40 minutes from my house. 30 maybe? So it's a little bit far for me on a daily basis. Plus, I would assume it's kind of hard to record a podcast in there.
1: So let's go off now to Germany, where a recent criminal trial has opened Germans' eyes to how far-right neo-Nazi elements have infiltrated law enforcement. It's a story by... Antonia Velocian, who is a freelance writer here in New York City. Antonio, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much for having me. So
1: it's a fascinating story on many levels, I think, especially as I read it, because it has echoes, if you're an American, as you point out in your story, almost like Charlottesville, Virginia, where all of a sudden these kinds of we get our eyes open to there's something going on here. So take us back to How Germany got its eyes open to this sort of shocking revelation and what they're doing about it?
4: Yeah, exactly. Like you say, it really was our Charlottesville moment. That was November 2011. <clears throat> I think we had thought of Far right Terror as something we checked off in the past and then come to realize, just like you guys in Charlottesville, during Charlottesville, that unfortunately we still have to deal with this. And while we may have dealt with it culturally, we as the Germans, not so much the Americans maybe, we had a long way to go institutionally and basically... What happened in November 2011 was that two young men and a woman were found to have formed a terror cell, lived underground in Germany for 12 years, which apparently means just moving an hour away from your hometown, getting some new passports, and otherwise going to work and going on holiday once a year. But during that time, they had killed 10 people, a policewoman and nine small business owners with immigrant background, Greek and Turkish. And yeah, pretty much got away with it up until that point. If you ask me, what did we do about it? I think the most tragic thing about the story was that during that whole time, The victims' families were the focal point of the investigation. Even when an FBI profiler in 2007, the Germans elicited his help, and he very quickly came to the conclusion that... The victims, I saw that the murders had to be right-wing motivated. So even then, the victims' families were still the focal point of the investigation. They organized protests but weren't heard. So we didn't do very much, unfortunately.
1: So the woman who was at the center of this terror group, the NSU, which stands for National Socialist Underground, is caught and brought to trial. And it's revealed that there were countless accomplices who provided weapons, identification papers. And it sort of just seemed to be... The tip of the iceberg, in some ways, in terms of, as you say, this sort of network that might have been protecting them from an accurate investigation, correct?
4: Yes, that's correct. I mean, the prosecution insists that up until the end of the trial, even in the written verdict, I love how I just said that. (laughs) That was very German. That it was a group of three. But like you say, it really wasn't. By conservative estimates, it was a group of 30. And some people think it was up to 200 people. And there was a moment in court which. I think, really stood out. So basically, during one of the murders, when Halid Josgat was murdered, he was a 21-year-old who borrowed money from his dad to open an internet cafe and put himself through evening school. And during his murder, there was an intelligence agent present. His name was Andreas Temme. And he was invited to court, and the judge asked him, well, did you see? Did you see anything? And he said, no, I didn't see anything, and I didn't hear anything. And a project by... Goldsmiths University concluded that was actually practically impossible because a man of his height would have seen Halid Yozgat lying in a pool of blood behind the counter. But the judge took a short break, came back and said, no, no, we think he's credible. And I think people were really shocked by that moment in court. And it says a lot about how much the prosecution was willing to investigate people working for the government.
1: And as you note in your reporting, in the 11 years since this case became public, more than 40 Germans have been killed by the hands of far right extremists when the court ruling then comes out it's still as you just noted it was criticized by lawyers as not being sort of really as tough as it should have been right which leads us to like how is this perceived in Germany now and this problem that's has some light shown on it
4: yeah so I think like I said up until 2011 we really believed we didn't have a problem with right-wing extremism then we think okay we do have a major problem. But I think people throughout this five year trial, which was obviously very expensive, it was our biggest since Nuremberg, people got a certain amount of fatigue around that topic and were like, let's just be done with it. So I think The people who were tuned in, certainly the victims' families, experts in that field, were appalled by the verdict. I think the average German was probably happy that she was behind bars and ready to move on. But then just one year later, we had a politician who was a proponent of Merkel's refugee policy who was murdered and then several terror attacks. And now I think people can't ignore it anymore. It's just really part of our life. It's very much part of our news cycle. Just last month, 18 police officers were fired from their job for swapping far-right content. This month, three members of staff at the Federal Intelligence Agency were suspended. So yeah, you can't ignore it anymore.
1: But how concerned should people in Germany be that this is about this problem and where it could lead?
4: Well, I think part of the problem lies in the fact that the people who are being threatened and are in real danger here are Germans with an immigrant background and so i think the everyday german that doesn't have an immigrant background doesn't feel as threatened by this situation because they're not unless they speak out everybody who speaks out receives death threats and is under a lot of pressure
1: obviously germany labors under the burden of a Nazi past, and Germany as a country kind of leads a double life, not unlike this terrorist group, right? Can you explain a little more about that?
4: I think we were really the poster child for, like, overcoming the past. We didn't have a choice, but I do think culturally, the way we handled it, just even by certain words and symbols being absolutely prohibited by law... I think we just, in general, did a good job. We have a sense of pride about what we achieved, and we don't really want the narrative to change, I think.
1: No, of course. I mean, how quickly the country denazified is remarkable, and yet it just shows you, as you note, I mean, the vigilance one has to have.
4: Very much so. And... Denazification. I'm totally with you, that it was probably a remarkably fast process, but in many cases, it wasn't enforced. So I'm just reading a book by the artist Gerhard Richter, whose aunt was killed in a what was deemed a euthanasia program because she was schizophrenic. And actually, the person in charge of this program ended up being his father-in-law. So he met his wife after the war, just seven years after the war, seven years after his aunt was murdered, and later found out that that was the case. And I think that's such a good illustration of German history.
1: So Antonia, you're based here in New York City and you're also now going to take the story and turn it into a podcast. So what are your plans for that and how do you see that story stretching out?
4: So yeah, I'm working on a podcast which will be six to eight episodes and the victim's perspective will really be the center of the podcast. So I want to really want to understand what it felt like from their perspective to be surveilled and criminalized be not allowed to be a victim. And also, I'm really interested in the role of the intelligence agency. I mentioned that agent who was present during a murder, and there's lots more to unpack there. So I'm excited to get started.
1: Good. Well, we look forward to that. And when that comes out, we'll have you back on the show. It's a eye-opening story about something that's urgent, whether you're in Germany or America or anywhere in sort of Western democracies, about elements that Look to destabilize and it's powerful reporting. So, Antonia, I really want to thank you for making time and being on the
4: show today.
0: Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, Michael, the weekend has arrived. We need to prepare ourselves for another and rainy, cold weekend. So do you have anything at all that can lighten the mood?
1: I do. And it involves, we have two obsessions on this show, I think. One is grifters. And I don't know if you'd agree with me. Can you guess one of my other obsessions for stories on this show? I'll just tell you. Espionage and spies. Please, of course. Well, have you heard about this great new espionage thriller called A Spy Among Friends?
0: Yes. Tell us everything.
1: Okay. It's a new limited series, which uses Ben McIntyre's terrific book of the same name as its source material. And it tells the story of the notorious MI6 agent and Soviet spy, Kim Philby. And Ben McIntyre, if you're reading the issue this week, has a book review for us. So contributing to the issue. But the first episode opens in 1963. It locks in with the discovery that Philby played by Guy Pearce, is a traitor who's been feeding the KGB and the Soviets intel for the past 20 years. And then his close friend and fellow agent, played by Damien Lewis, who also looks damn good, is tasked with going to Beirut to retrieve him and extract a confession. I love it, obviously, from the drop. It's layered, it's moody, it's beautifully shot. And it's also just got all those clues and codes of class and tradition in post-war Great Britain. I would say the one thing, it's a little hard to find. But worth it, it's being shown on the new streamer MGM+, Plus, which you can navigate on your TV, but you can also find it via Amazon Prime. At least get the first episode there. So it's called A Spy Among Friends, and it's on MGM+, Plus, which used to be epics, if you're keeping score at home. I promise you, you're going to love this. It's going to make you feel like it's dark, moody London in the 60s, and it sort of even like replaces a little bit of what, if you've been missing the crown, you're going to dig it. I promise.
0: All right. Fair enough. Consider it done.
1: And you, darling?
0: Now that I'm working on airmail, look. I have been reading The Glucose Revolution by Jesse and pay Yeah, that's right, Michael. It's not my usual fare but this is my new life and you're going to read all about glucose and upcoming a Sugar Meal Weekly. Also, Ted Lasso's back.
1: I mean, what else is there to really talk about? Exactly. You mentioned Ted Lasso earlier. He's back better than ever. The wait is over. So
0: I have Lasso in the mind. <laughs> Are you a Lasso fan? Uh,
1: yes. Live, eat, breathe, Ted Lasso. I've been waiting for this for more than a year now. So, yeah.
0: Sometimes here in London, I feel like Ted Lasso because one, I'm from Wichita, Kansas, which is where Ted Lasso is from. That's where he was coaching. He was coaching the Wichita State Shockers before he came to Richmond. That's true. And two as a midwesterner in london who finds absolutely everything about this country charming and delightful like i just feel like we're kindred spirits me and old ted i mean i have no interest in athletics really but aside from that we are very much aligned
1: okay do you hate tea
0: oh good point no i actually like tea i've grown to love tea in fact
1: okay i don't like tea so put the two of us together we're ted lasso then
0: what's wrong with a feel-good show michael there's so much angst in the world. I'm sorry. Exactly. Love him. And also, feel for him. We're not going to get into the Olivia Wilde stuff here. So while we're talking about life in London, that is one topic you just can't bring up at a dinner party conversation. The Harry Styles, Ted Lasso, Olivia Wilde conversation. Because it turns out everyone here is one degree away of connection from either Harry Styles or Olivia Wilde. So you're going to step in it no matter what. As I can tell you from experience, avoid the topic. It is kryptonite. In New York, gossiping about celebrities is like kind of fun and harmless. But here, because their families are so intertwined in the cultural world and the, the world of journalism here, it's like everybody knows everybody. So do not have an opinion. All you can say is, I saw Don't Worry, Darling, and I found it rather mixed. That is your safe line.
1: Good to know where the lines are. And also, I just want to remind people, if you're loving Ted Lasso, be sure and look at Shrinking, which comes from Brad Goldstein, who also works on Ted Lasso. And I think it's one of the best new comedies of the season as well. Into
0: it. All right. Well, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Michael, will you please read us out?
1: By AirPlay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Gila Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on Airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning News meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.